Hey Andy, how many of your online accounts share the same password? Well, let's see. Um, I guess pretty much all of them. Why do you ask? I was afraid of that. See, you should never use the same password for online banking accounts as you use for other online accounts. But surprisingly, of the more than 2,000 Americans who took our recent consumer cybersecurity survey, nearly a quarter of them say it is okay to use the same password for online banking as for other accounts. Wow, really? Well, just so you know, Laura, I was only kidding about using the same password for multiple accounts. But you bring up a good point. Many consumers could use some sound advice on how to protect their confidential information online. In fact, the need for consumer cybersecurity education and awareness was a resounding theme of our survey. At our recent customer conference, we sat down with Steve Sanders, CSI's Vice President of Internal Audit, to discuss several of today's most pressing cybersecurity issues, including how institutions can develop a strong cyber education program for their customers. And he said, So I think the banks have a real opportunity here to go out and educate their consumers, the clients of the bank, and maybe even people who aren't clients of the bank, about what they need to do to secure themselves, to be more prepared for those privacy concerns themselves. And of course, then it makes the bank look like the expert in the area, which I think is a win for everybody. I'm Laura Sewell. And I'm Andy Goldstein. We're excited to bring you the first episode in our CX-19 series, recorded live from the event in Chicago. You're listening to FinTech Focus from CSI. Joining us now is Steve Sanders, friend of the pod and CSI's Vice President of Internal Audit. Steve, thanks for returning to FinTech Focus and chatting with us again on cybersecurity. Glad to have you back on the show. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Andy. Steve, I wanted to start by touching on a few points from our upcoming Consumer Cybersecurity Executive Report, which is based on a poll CSI recently conducted through Harris Poll. In it, of the more than 2,000 American consumers who responded to the poll, identity theft was the biggest fear for 73% of them. In your opinion, are their fears justified? And regardless, what can banks do to help educate their customers so they don't fall victim to identity theft? I absolutely think it is justified. And in fact, the breaches that we've had over the last year have shown that more and more. And people are paying a little bit more attention now. The interesting thing is people are looking to their banks as the experts. So I think the banks have a real opportunity here to go out and educate their consumers, the clients of the bank, and maybe even people who aren't clients of the bank, about what they need to do to secure themselves, to be more prepared for those privacy concerns themselves. And of course, then it makes the bank look like the expert in the area, which I think is a win for everybody. Exactly. And doesn't that also help protect the bank itself? Absolutely. If if a bank has smart clients, then the bank is more secure as well. So I do think there's a win-win here. And again, it makes them the expert in the community and people are already looking to them as the expert. Exactly. Another point from the poll, um, 74% of Americans said that if it were offered, they would participate in a consumer education and awareness uh, program. In fact, it was a top theme of this year's consumer poll. Do you have any tips you could share with banks on starting a customer education program? I do. I I will tell you that the thing I've seen that is that this isn't well planned out. It's not well attended. So I have attended a number of these. I've spoken at a number of these. And if, if the session is not planned out, the attendance is very low. And by that, what time of day do you have the session? Is it at 5 o'clock? People may not want to come right after work. 
but they may not be able to come at 2 p.m. So you have to look at your clients. Are your clients mostly retired? Are your clients mostly working? When is the best time for your clients? How do you inspire them to come? Do you have a great giveaway? Do you give a, an iPhone away maybe as a gift? Is there something you can give to them to inspire them to show up? And then feed them. Have a good, good buffet there with a local restaurant. Do something to, to encourage them to actually come to the event. Again, it's a win-win. If they show up, they're smarter, and the bank's better protected. I'm, I'm ready to go now. If we're talking about giving away food? iPhones and food, like, I'm sold. <laughs> I, I'm ready to learn whatever you're teaching. Like I'm, I'm in. That sounds amazing. Um, right, so let's go from iPhones and food, the good stuff. Let's, let's, let's transition to some of the scary stuff that you're talking about in your session. So uh, in your conference session, Simple Steps for Strategic Cybersecurity Oversight, you examined the biggest cyber risk challenges currently facing banks. Among those, we're looking at hacking, misuse, malware, social engineering, errors, and, and physical threats. And I would love to touch on those, each one, a little bit if, if we can. Um, let's start with hacking. Um, go into that and, and talk a little bit about, because, I mean, hacking, the technology that goes into that changes seemingly every day. But let's go into that a little bit and talk about the challenges that banks are facing in trying to prevent hacking. So hacking, first off, is an interesting word because we classify everything as hacking. For example, if someone's Facebook account gets cloned, they tell everyone, I've been hacked. And they haven't been hacked. Someone is impersonating them, and there's a big difference. Yeah. So hacking, however, is a really big deal. In fact, 52% of the breaches happening today are happening from hacking. Hmm. So it is a big deal. So when we think of hacking, what do we think of? Well, most of the time we think of vulnerabilities that are compromised in some way. And, and let me give an example. Uh, with, with Equifax, they didn't update their, uh, they, they did not update their systems. Right. And so the, the hacker took advantage of that. And so that, that is what we typically think of with hacking. But let's step back to the Starwood breach that happened with Marriott. What happened there is there was uh, a misconfiguration, allowed a hacker in. The hacker put a back door in their system through a Trojan, and they ended up basically being able to control this back door. And they could run rampant within the organization. So we have to be aware of all of those things. And that means we need good perimeter security, but we need more than just good perimeter security. Once they're in, everything looks legitimate if you don't have good internal security too. Now, the, the other thing that we need to keep in mind with hacking, there are two things that really help significantly. Patch your machines and don't give access to the Internet to anything that doesn't need access to the Internet. Yeah, it, it seems like you mentioned the Equifax breach, and it seems like several breaches that, that we've read about in the last couple of years or so have been because they haven't updated Windows or just something that seems so simple and so easy to do, they're not doing and so I imagine that's that's probably a part of your message is just, you know, do the, the basic and just make sure that all your systems are updated. Well, and you brought up a good point. Windows updates aren't the only updates anymore. In fact, every workstation is effectively a server now. Mm -hmm. So you have to update every application on every workstation. One thing that I'm, I'm out preaching to everybody is if you don't need an application, uninstall it. If it, is, if it isn't there, it's not a risk. Right. And so we also have to look at updating other things such as SQL Server, which is a Microsoft product, yep. Adobe Struts. We have to look at updating WordPress, the most vulnerable system out there today if it's not updated. So we have to look at all things, not just Windows updates. 
So how do you define misuse? Is that a, a, a policy thing, like breaking IT policy? Is, are we talking about fit, like usage of physical systems and servers? How is that defined? I, typically, I would classify misuse a little bit more nefarious than just not following policy and procedures. Typically, it's someone who has the rights to do something legitimately. For example, they're an administrator on their systems, but they misuse those rights for their own benefit. That's typically what we're talking about. It could also be, however, using a, a piece of software they've been granted access to to do something they're not supposed to do with it. For example, maybe a piece of software has a feature that goes out to the internet and that isn't something that's been uh, accepted within the organization, but you turn it on because it makes your life easier. You can control that software from home. And so that's misuse as well. It's really a broad category. So it, it's basically employees though. It is employees, that's gotcha. right. You're listening to FinTech Focus. We're talking cybersecurity with Steve Sanders, CSI's Vice President of Internal Audit, in a conversation recorded live at CX19. Malware seems to be sort of what you were talking about with hacking. Malware seems to encompass a lot. There's a, there's a lot of different types of malware out there. So walk us through that and some of the, the best ways that banks can defend themselves against malware. Yeah, you know, the the, uh, the 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 old guys in the room when we're talking about malware are viruses, trojans, and worms. They aren't the big deal anymore. The big deal now is other types of malware. For example, spyware and the related family, key loggers that go into that, or uh, also ransomware. Ransomware is, it, it, it makes people shiver to think they might come into their bank on Monday morning and a computer be encrypted, a critical computer. Well, and a lot of, there have been a lot of high profile uh, security breaches that have been ransomware. Uh, WannaCry was one, right? Absolutely. I mean, that, yeah. that made massive news. It was a huge, that was a huge right. ransomware We've had entire cities. The city of Atlanta, right? right. Was a, was a, yes. Yeah, Which is pretty absolutely. terrifying. On the subject of ransomware, do you recommend paying the ransom? It depends. Okay. And so I'm not opposed to it. But here's, here's what I would, what I would uh, admonish everyone to do. The best solution to ransomware is to have good backups. Yeah. Then you ignore the ransom and you say, I don't care. We're going to restore the system. We'll, we'll wipe it. We'll start back from, from scratch and we're fine. So sometimes it's okay to ignore it. Uh, backups are, are key to that. Also having good controls in place otherwise to, to catch that ransomware before the encryption happens, that's critical too. However, if your machine's encrypted and you need the data on the machine, you're hosed if you don't get the data. And so what do you do? Well, the truth is anymore, if you pay the ransom, you're going to get your data unencrypted. Why? Because the hackers consider this a business. If they don't unencrypt the data, they don't, people don't continue paying. Well, exactly right. They have a, a reputation to right. protect. Uh, otherwise, no one will pay them. So, Yeah, that's exactly right. So I do recommend that most banks explore Bitcoin. Understand how to buy it. If not, buy some just so you've gone through the exercise. Give someone in the bank the authority to make the decision to purchase the Bitcoin and pay the ransom if necessary. That's probably a very high-level decision. I would recommend it not be a board decision. It's too hard to get the board together that quick. But perhaps uh, maybe your chief information security officer has the, the authority to make a decision that they can pay up to X thousand dollars if necessary. And they'll just have to be strategic in their decision making. Steve, we also hear uh, an awful lot about social engineering. And there are many different types of social engineering. What, what are you seeing out there right now? Phishing is still king. 
the fishers are getting really, really good. If you just go back four or five years ago, phishing emails had misspellings. They had wrong colors. The, the language was not, it was obviously not English, uh, the native language rather. It's not that way anymore. The phishing emails that come in are really, really good. And so I, I do think phishing is still king there, but there's a lot of other things that are just as effective. And in fact, you can pick up a phone and call somebody, and if you're really good, you can get whatever you need right over the phone. In fact, we had the Department of Justice that was partially compromised through phone conversations wow. at one point because the person convinced them that they were supposed to have access to a system. So phishing is still king, though. The next one you uh, talk about in your session is errors. What do you mean by that? Errors are, you know, there's a lot of things that could encompass errors, but if a system is misconfigured, that system is going to produce errors. If errors happen, those errors can be compromised. There, um, errors are not really where most of the compromises are happening, but it's indeed something that has to be paid attention to. Errors can also be someone setting up something wrong, so a misconfiguration. Uh, you know, an error can be uh, a user, for example, let's step back to... Um, to the breach with Capital One. That was a misconfiguration. That was an error that happened, and, and it was a big one, a very wow. costly one. There was another one, and I can't remember who it was, but this was a, um, I believe it was an S3 issue. I think their, their uh, S3 bucket, I think they, did, they didn't turn off the public-facing setting on their, their biggest data server. And so someone, I think, was pretty much just able to walk in. This may have been Capital One, and I can't remember, but you see, I think you see a lot of that. Just a very simple setting on a database if, if if it's not you know the public setting isn't turned off you're you're dead in the water a absolutely and related to that you have people who maybe get access to data and they aren't trained on how to handle it so the facebook breach in april of this past year was vendors who were not protecting the data yeah. right yeah. so these vendors put this out on an amazon share on a on a on an amazon web server and they gave public access to it in terms of physical threats, um, are, this what comes to mind is just you know sharing your ID badge with someone, maybe letting someone into the door that shouldn't be in there, um, not having a sign-in sheet, which sounds like something that is so simple, but that's a you know that's a PCI requirement. You got to have a sign-in sheet. People have to sign in when they visit you. So is is that am I am I getting that right? With yeah, you're you're right on target. So f the the thing is, if I can physically get to your machine, in probably 99 times out of 100, I can compromise that machine. In fact, I can crack your password in under 30 seconds in almost every case. So physical access is critical. I used to know a man that he was able to get into any place he went because he was in a wheelchair, and he used that to his advantage. He would load his lap up with lots of things, and he said, people bend over backwards to open the door for me. And so he, he was in this business, and he used that to his advantage. Uh, so controlling those doors, not letting somebody piggyback in on you, right. not letting someone into an area they don't need access to. And frankly, it goes back to reducing that access all the time. Mm -hmm. You do not need access to an area you do not need access to. Good advice. Turning to a different topic, Steve, we've been hearing quite a lot over the last few years about cybersecurity frameworks, and you are a big proponent of those. Uh, can you give us a quick description of a framework and its intent. Yeah, the, the best way I think to describe it, 
the framework is not the completed house. The framework is the framework of the house. We're not talking about what color shutters we put on. We're not talking about the siding, whether it's brick or whether it's vinyl. We're not talking about the type of roof. We're, we're building a structure on which we can finish the house. They aren't prescriptive. They aren't telling you exactly what to do. And many banks are making a mistake of thinking of frameworks as only a compliance tool. But they're not just a compliance tool. Frameworks are for the banks. They are a strategic tool that when it is used right, it can help guide them in all their decision making. So the frameworks, again, aren't prescriptive, but they do help identify where your weaknesses are, where attention needs to be spent, where the budget needs to go up, where you're most likely to be compromised. And it also helps give a good picture of your security posture to your board of directors. So is there a particular framework that you recommend every bank using? Is there is there an, sort of an industry standard uh, or maybe is there one that might be a little easier to adopt to kind of get started? You know, most banks should be using the CAT by now. If they're not, frankly... And CAT stands for? CAT stands for Cybersecurity Assessment Tool. Okay, yeah. And if they're not using the CAT, shame on them. That That is, frankly, something everybody should be doing. But the CAT is kind of like primary school. It is not robust. There will be some banks that the CAT is perfect for. Typically, that are, those will be small banks without a high-risk profile. Mm -hmm. But most banks at some point are going, going to want to graduate. And when they graduate, the Cybersecurity Framework, CSF, is probably where most community banks will end up. The next level past that is probably NIST 800-53 mm -hmm. or the ISO standards. But the, the problem with those standards is the amount of effort it takes to go through that program mm -hmm. is probably not worth the payoff, whereas the cybersecurity framework will be. In fact, any bank could get a lot out of that. So I do recommend most banks look at graduating to the CSF. But I'm going to add to this. There's, there's something that is not a framework that every single bank needs to be using, and that is the CIS Top 20. The CIS Top 20 is often labeled as a framework. It is not. If the framework is the frame store house, the CIS Top 20 is saying, okay, the boards you're using need to be two by fours. You need to have this sort of structure, nails this often in your building. <laughs> but, but the CIS Top 20 helps you to understand how you make your house more safe. Gotcha. I feel like while, while I'm watching this old house, that was such a good analogy. I'm like, man, he just... This guy knows how to build houses. Might be I doing was that thinking on the, of it in my head I know. as we were I talking like, about it. Doing that on the side, I think. Man, <laughs> that was amazing. Um, you mentioned earlier, actually, one of the, the possible roles that a chief information security officer or a CISO would fill. Um, and it seems like, depending on uh, the amount of staff at a bank or the amount of, of, of uh, staff size at a, at a firm, that a CISO could have different roles. You know, a CISO at, at firm A is not going to have the same responsibilities as a CISO at firm B. I, I think it's, it's, um, it, it's definitive that you should have a CISO on staff. I think everything should be kind of flowing through that CISO. They should be helping to build uh, IT strategy and that kind of thing. So when someone is looking into hiring a CISO, what should they look for? What do you think makes a good CISO? What should they be bringing to the table? That is a great question. I think this is a really misused position today. Most CISOs out there, at least in smaller organizations, are, hire, are hired because of their IT prowess. But that is not what you need in a CISO. In fact, your CISO, it doesn't matter if they've never programmed a router in their life. 
as long as they understand the, the technology and the language and can speak it. What CISOs really need more than anything is business minds that are strategic in their thinking. They need to be able to earn a seat at the table. And as long as they are tacticians, only implementing what they're told to implement, they will never find that seat at the table. They need to be the person that the CEO will call and will say to them, what should we do? And the CEO will respect that opinion because that CISO has proven themselves to be a business-minded strategic thinker. They also need to be somebody that can present meaningful data to boards of directors, not troves of data that really will never get looked at. They need to be able to produce concise messages that matter. Wonderful. Excellent advice and information, Steve. We've had you on the show before, and, and we like having you on. Because, Always a great discussion. You know, we, we joked about the, the house analogy, but that's perfect for someone like me who sort of has a cursory knowledge of IT, and, and we love having you on because you're so good at breaking down this stuff in, in simple terms. So thank you for sitting with us. This was really great. Well, we appreciate thank it. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you, Steve. That's it for this week's episode of FinTech Focus. Thanks again to CSI's Steve Sanders for chatting with us, and we appreciate all of you for listening. To get your free copy of CSI's Consumer Cybersecurity Poll Executive Report, visit csiweb.com slash consumerpoll19. We recorded several more episodes live at CX19 with guests including ICBA President and CEO Rebecca Romero-Rainey, Salent's Head of Corporate Banking, Patty Hines, and much more. So stay tuned for those, and we'll talk to you soon.